and we are recording with Mr. Lee Slusher on Sunday, July 30th, 2023 at 2.40 p.m. Eastern Time. It was supposed to be yesterday, and to all the smartasses commenting on the placeholder, I didn't sleep, and I canceled the shows, and the show's free, so fuck off. And that's that, and um, so before we start, Lee's been on here two times before. Uh, I gotta tell you that you are <clears throat> the focus of of an inside joke, and it's not oh, bad. No. It's not bad. No, no, it's not bad. <laughs> it's I'll explain it quickly because it's not that interesting to anyone outside of the circle. Every night I do a video game stream, and it's super laid back, and everyone comes in and we just shoot the shit, and I just play whatever, and they run for hours and hours, and it's just it's for people who like the show come in and interact, and it's whatever, and um. Uh, I was playing um, Ready or Not, which is a SWAT team, a SWAT team game, and I just I would just walk around with a shotgun and just purposely just blow heads off. I mean, literally just gory, and uh, I, I would call it Tommy's Head Poppers, and I would just kind of say it in like a you know like a New England like Tommy's Head Poppers. Just yeah. it's just a stupid silly. There's nothing to it. Whatever. Um, and then. Years ago, I remember watching a uh, Bill Burr on Joe Rogan, and they were talking about something. And Rogan mentioned like a, a company from Boston called Weber's, and Bill Burr just goes Weber, and Rogan was like, "What?" And he goes, "Sorry, it's just I like the accent," and that, that's just always stuck in my mind. And uh, so as I was doing this thing, I was just I started saying Weber, and somebody said was uh, Lee Slusher on the podcast today, and I just went Slusher. <laughs> and uh, it became this joke of like Lee. So whenever I'm like playing Ready or Not or something, you just get a random comment like all caps Lee Slusher, and it's just become <laughs> this. It's become this thing, and it's been going on for like like two fucking months. And people are always like, "What's the Lee?" And I'm like, "It's a long, unimportant story." And uh, but I told them I was like, "I'm gonna next time I have Lee on, I'm gonna tell him." And they're all like, "I hope That's he funny. receives it well." And I was like. It's going to go one of two ways. He's not going to care or it's going to be wildly offensive to him somehow. So No, it's 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 amusing. For whatever it's worth, you are uh you are a, a member of of the lore of the video game stream. Please slusha. It's <laughs> funny because I'm not a gamer. Like I played the original Nintendo back yeah. in the 80s and it's since just, then so yeah, I would have no no idea. It's just it's not important. People are like what what's the meaning to it? I'm like it's 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 a waste of your brain cells for me to explain it to you. I explained to some people, and they're like, that's it? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know why you asked. But, uh, so, anyway, yeah, this is uh, everybody listening. Lee Slusher, here he is. But, uh, Lee, real quick, could you introduce yourself for people who uh, don't know you, aside from what I just said? <laughs> sure. I uh, started my career about 25 years ago, mostly have done uh, intelligence work. I did. Uh, I was a cryptologic linguist initially for the Army, did Russian, Serbo-Croatian, and Farsi, and I uh, worked in signals intelligence. After I get out of the army, I worked uh, partly uh, for the IC directly, the intelligence community, and partly I did intelligence work for an army organization called the Asymmetric Warfare Group. Um, and about half of that was kind of na writing national level intelligence assessments and half of it was operational. So I was out, I went to Afghanistan four times and Iraq once, uh, then spent about seven years doing national security analysis for various, uh, for the Defense Department through the uh, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. And after that, um, well, during that time, I got to do a lot of interesting things. I was the chief architect of a multi-year effort to revamp Taiwan's uh, defense, uh, Taiwan's army's training doctrine for uh, basically a Chinese invasion. 
And uh, I also was heavily involved in the early Ukraine stuff. So uh, I got to go over there a little while after the whole Crimea annexation. And I wrote some of the early documents that served as the foundation for future security cooperation with Ukraine. For about the past five years, I've been the CEO of my own consulting company, BT Consulting. And last year I started my own Substack uh, because my wife told me she just couldn't stand to listen to me talk about war and politics anymore. And I had to find some other outlet for it. So uh, I started writing because I've done a lot of writing, uh, professional writing in my career. And it turns out people, some people actually enjoy it. So hell yeah. It's nice. Hell yeah. So kind of concerning um, Russia and you, I, I've not that anyone gives a shit about, I don't know why I'm giving my update. Like, but like, I've just kind of like checked out from it. It's sad. I get it. People are dying. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, it's kind of, it kind of feels like uh, we're just watching World War One. It's like the front moved here and it moved there and it's drones and stuff. And I get, I get that it's interesting and important, but I've kind of, as someone that doesn't really know anything about it, I've, I've checked out. You see videos all the time and they all kind of, just from the layman's point of view, it's like, it's kind of abstract numbers you know like we're sending 400 million dollars of aid to this and france is sending these and i don't know what's a tank and what's a missile launcher and it's just so from my i guess caveman mind i've kind of i've kind of backed away from it because it doesn't really seem like anything is is happening is that a totally checked out and inaccurate just bob from the street take on it uh, well, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to check out and to be just to reach peak, you know, Ukraine overload. But a lot is happening. Okay. So uh, there's just not a lot that has resulted in massive changes that uh, someone who doesn't pay attention uh, to the situation would find noteworthy. Okay. So when we talked about this before, you know, I, I'm a, I, I don't do play by play analysis at this point in my career. I do some of the, the bigger picture stuff. And I haven't really changed my big picture analysis much in recent months because it hasn't changed all that much uh, in recent months with a couple of exceptions. So let's let's start with that. Uh, My fundamental view is there are two ways that this goes. One is that there's a direct Western intervention in Ukraine. I'm not saying that's likely. I'm saying there are only two paths. One is a direct Western intervention in Ukraine in which case all bets are off because that leads to conflict with Russia and who, who knows where that goes, but it's, it's not anywhere good. And then the other possibility is that Russia wins decisively enough to, either, to set the terms for peace. And they do that either by just clobbering Ukraine and taking a bunch of land, or they do it by being in such an advantageous position that they get to dictate things uh, according to how they want them to go. So we can we can kind of move forward from there. So that's that's been my basic assessment since I don't know late last year or so. So what what else has happened since then? Well, um, most notably, and it's still in the news right now, is this Ukraine uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. So let's let's kind of look at that. Or, or actually, let's let's back up. You mentioned the World War One thing once, so I want to address that. It's not like that, but it's. And, and here there are some important reasons why. One side is on the brink of collapse, not only its military, but its government. And the other side is perpetually getting stronger and just amassing a larger force. And we can guess who those two sides are. Well, we shouldn't guess because some people get it wrong. I was about to say. I Yeah. The side that's on the verge of collapse is Ukraine. Okay. And that's been losing. They've probably lost a few hundred thousand men. Jesus. And why Russia... 
One of the reasons people don't think much has been going on is because Russia spent much of the time since last summer, like well through autumn and into now, engaging in this massive military mobilization. So they thought their initial move it wasn't their initial move last uh, after February of last year was going to be enough to prompt some kind of agreement. So Russia has been basically beating the drum for 15 years that they need some kind of resolution to this situation, not just to the eastward movement. Of, uh, of NATO and the EU, but that it would it would destabilize Ukraine because Ukraine is so split. Like it's there are sides that uh, want to be pro that are pro Russian and sides that are pro Ukrainian, to an extent that is very volatile and threatens stability. Obviously, so they've been seeking some kind of resolution, but they couldn't really find a partner in that. And so then comes uh, the events of fourteen and Euromaidan and all of that. And so Russia realizes that it has to take uh, Crimea to kind of secure the plate, well, its old, its historic land, but also the home of its Black Sea fleet. And then the war in Donbass kind of starts at that point uh, in the spring after Crimea, very immediately after. So what we had was after that, a series of agreements, Minsk one, Minsk two, things like that. Now we've all heard even Angela Merkel come out and say, well, those were really just an effort to buy time so that we could arm Ukraine. We weren't really uh, sincere about it, about a lasting solution according to the terms of the Minsk agreements. So basically, time and again after another, it's kind of clear to Russia that there's not uh, th there's not been a settlement to this huge volatility down down there in Ukraine. And so now, what we're seeing is. Uh, Russia went in there too light, thinking that would be enough. Like, okay, guys, we're we're serious. You know, last year in, in uh, February of last year, we really need some kind of resolution. But what they end up, and then they ended up in the spring of last year having basically an unsigned agreement at a meeting in Istanbul in the spring between the Russian and Ukrainian sides, and it and that's when Russia pulled back its forces north of Kiev, and they're kind of progressing along to what uh, Moscow at least hopes is some kind of an end to you know to a future bloodshed and so at this point um the western powers essentially tell Zelensky he's got an open checkbook and all the aid we can give him and to you know go ahead and fight and kick the russians out and so that ukraine ends up not following through on this agreement tentative agreement that they had in istanbul in the spring of last year and instead Russia finds itself sort of already in Ukraine, kind of with its pants down. It didn't ha it didn't go in there with some massive army that it could have formed. It could have just pulverized the place. I mean, Russia has the capabilities just to smash the hell out of Ukraine, and it could have done it last year. It could have had a big mobilization, gone in, uh, mobilization, gone in, destroyed the infrastructure, blown the hell out of Kiev. They could have done all those things, and they didn't. And so now here we are. Um, Russia had to had to go ahead and mobilize since last summer. Remember, remember uh, people were saying, you know, Russia's going to take the place, you know, Millie and such. Russia will take the place in a weekend. And then when and Biden offered Zelensky a ride and there was that famous line, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, all of that. So we went from that to a full blown uh, Western proxy war against Russia in Ukraine and Russia was ill prepared. So it took all this time to go ahead and mobilize. And then uh, in, along certain parts of the front, it built uh, probably some of the best defenses in the history of warfare, just line after line after line that are extremely well constructed. They mobilized a large force. Um, they got their defense industrial base mo mo moving. Think about it like a kind of like a big 
um, giant that takes a little bit of time to to get moving. Well, now the giant is sort of in full swing. They've got these strong defensive lines. They can kill anything that comes near their lines. No one has, has even penetrated them. And they have a tremendous overmatch in all sorts of things. They've got an overmatch in firepower, in artillery. Uh, they can shoot not just from the front or from immediately behind the front with their artillery. They have cruise missiles coming in from aircraft. They've got cruise missiles being fired by both boats and submarines in both the Black and Caspian Seas that fly all throughout the entirety of Ukraine. So for a couple of months now, while Russia has been holding the line on its uh, these really well-made defenses, the, there's been just a Russian onslaught all throughout the entirety of Ukraine, destroying all ton of the military equipment that NATO has sent, destroying headquarters of operational units, headquarters of intelligence services. So they're very kind of methodically just uh, decimating all of this stuff in front of their lines. But earlier this year, in about January, there was a big meeting in Ramstein and all the donor countries got together and that's where they pledged all these armored vehicles, all this military support to Ukraine. And now Ukraine was supposed to use that for a counteroffensive that many people foolishly thought was going to break through, break through the Russian lines uh, and create some sort of land bridge and, you know, cut them off and stuff like that. So that's kind of, a, that generally gets us caught up. But the reality is, uh, Russia has been systematically destroying Ukraine's ability to make war it's in large part by just killing its people, by killing the soldiers. So Ukraine had this massive army that we trained up when I mentioned that I went over and was uh, one of the wrote some early stuff for uh, future security cooperation. All that stuff led to the creation of a massive army. The biggest army in Europe was the Ukrainian army at that point in continental Europe. Um, so that army's gone. The army that they used to replace that last summer is essentially gone and degraded. And now they're sort of on this third one and they're smashing up against these uh, tremendously well-made defenses and not making any progress. So that kind of brings us to something I think it's important for people to understand. It was always ridiculous to believe that this counteroffensive was going to do anything against these uh, these defenses. Now, first of all, the defender always has an advantage against the attacker. I think one need not have been in the military to understand that. So they're dug in. They have uh, mines all over the place. So basically, the Ukrainians, in e in order even to engage the Russians, it's not they they have to drive through this no man's land that's between the Russian defenses and wherever the Ukrainians are at the time. Much of that is mined. It's all within Russia's artillery umbrella. It's within range of their attack helicopters. It's within range of their drones. They've got small uh, anti-tank guided missile teams that go forward both on foot and in, vehicle, uh, in vehicles. And so the Ukrainians basically have to enter the kill zone just to get close enough to the Russians to even shoot at them. So that's what's been going on with this counteroffensive since last, not last month. You know, they basically find try to wind their way through these minefields. Many of them die or their vehicles get disabled in the minefields. And then, of course, they're restricted. Their movement is restricted because they're in freaking minefields. And then they just get clobbered. And so this thing has been playing out again and again since the counteroffensive began uh, in June. And this uh, the senseless slaughter continues like there's there's absolutely no way that they're going to win. I am. Um, I was asked to write a, an explainer on the war within like the first 24 hours of Russia's invasion last year. So I wrote this big, long thing for this consulting network I belong to. It's based in D.C. 
And one of the things I wrote was that, you know, Russia has the ability, even just using conventional weapons to, uh, to defeat Ukraine. And what we're seeing now is they, they were kind of, Russia was kind of foolhardy thinking that initial incursion last year was going to be enough to get some kind of uh, agreement of neutrality. And instead we've seen them fully mobilize and now kind of the bear is awakened. And the bigger point that I'd make is just like with the counteroffensive, that it was ridiculous to think that it could work. My view is look, I've worked the former Soviet Union off and on since the late nineties. And a lot of that was on since uh, 2014. And I've done a lot of the work for the DOD about Russian military capabilities, about uh, events in Ukraine and things like that. It was always ridiculous to, to suggest that Ukraine could defeat Russia in a conflict. I mean, just any sound military capabilities analysis. You just look at the two countries, the differences in population, the size of their forces, the capabilities of their forces, the ability to mobilize for a longer fight. I mean, it was, this is not to say that Russia could would always win a swift victory. In fact, kind of the history of, Mus of Russian, um, R Russian military history rather, mm -hmm. has a lot of slow starts or failed first starts, but then they mobilize and then they get their act together. And then you don't want to be anywhere near the bear when he's angry. And so my view is that it was always ridiculous to suggest Ukraine could win. And it was, I mean, the only way it would happen would be by a, a series of miracles, one after another. Like it, it really is that improbable, but people push the war anyway. And so now here we are. And uh, there's really no reason for Russia to have any faith that the West is going to honor an agreement when the previous agreements weren't honored. And really, uh, I wrote this back in uh, about six months ago. I wrote a big assessment called Rubble and Rhetoric. It's the pinned assessment on my Substack, and it's uh, it's fairly lengthy, but it explains in detail all my thoughts on the war in Ukraine. And now we're to the point where all those things that I described are happening, and eventually, you know, like Russia's not going to be like I was saying. They don't have a, a partner to have some kind of negotiated peace, like. These people in DC and the foreign policy establishment keep floating ideas about, oh, maybe a you know a partitioned like a like a Korea style um, end to the conflict. They don't realize who holds the cards, or, or they do, but they realize that if they just accept that reality, they'll be outed as having kind of created this massive slaughter in Ukraine for for absolutely no reason. So they just keep pushing all of these hail marys, right? Um, but eventually, the clock runs out. Um, and I don't know exactly how that goes. I don't know that it's Russia having to do a long, hard slog fighting onward or that they just continue to degrade the Ukrainians to the point where they just can't fight anymore. And they're, they're pretty, they're very near that. I mean, they still have some forces. They still have some of the equipment we gave them, but increasingly they've had major personnel problems because so many people have been killed or wounded. I mean, hundreds of thousands, many hundreds of thousands. And so now we see the press gangs on the streets just grabbing people off the streets, giving them a little bit of training and sending them to the front. We see, um, if anybody doesn't believe that because they think uh, the videos are propaganda, just take a broad-based look at all the reporters who've been near the front with the Ukrainians and even the ones who are pro-Ukraine and, and look at their description of the types of people they see now. They're increasingly older, some of them old, fathers of multiple children, guys much older than I am. I mean, I saw this picture, I can't remember which paper it was from the UK, but there was an, a straight up elderly man in a trench. And uh, I don't know who let this run, but 
the title above his head read morale is high like oh morale is high with the elderly man you know you know with a grimace in, in a trench so there's plenty of evidence that their personnel problems are really severe and then you kind of factor that into the the counter offensive it's not just that they're running out of people and that the people aren't uh, well trained the kind of operations they're doing take a lot of training not just training in general but training as a team training on the equipment you have we've given them this whole potluck this hodgepodge of equipment to people who've been pressed together who haven't trained on that equipment long whose tactics were never meant to support the use of that equipment and now we've just kind of said all right we've got men we've got guns we've got vehicles sort of you know, push forward and they're all getting annihilated. So the end will be, like I said, it's, it's one of the two, either there's a Western intervention in which case all get all bets are off or it's a Russian victory. Uh, in which case I think there are serious ramifications for, for the West and for NATO. And I pause there. No, you're good. <clears throat> Sorry. I got the, the COVID uh, scratchy voice going on. No, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Did I start this podcast by telling you I shoot people in the head while yelling your name? This is clearly, <laughs> it's clearly not a serious program. Uh, um, that's fine. That's but fine. <clears throat> well, let's actually fuck it. Let, let's use let's use ready or not as a, a for the layman like me. It's a SWAT game, right? And it's you lose points by killing everyone. The entire point is to go in there and get a perfect score if you can like disarm people, tase them, zip tie them, save the civilians, whatever. And um you know, I'll play it and I'll try to play it seriously. But the second it starts to become ridiculous and like you lose one of your guys and you're getting shot at, I just say fuck it. And I just I put away the taser and I just go full auto and I just kill everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I'm going to survive. At a certain point, is Russia not going to do that? And I mean, it's like it's like us in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam. We didn't. Vietnam, we kind of went hardcore with, like, linebacker and rolling thunder, just bombing. But, man, we never went tactical nuke. We never went full bioweapon or your chemical weapon. You could you could say Agent Orange. In Afghanistan, you know, at any point when, like, the surge wasn't working, theoretically, we could have just withdrawn everyone, and then you have some megaton warheads coming down from orbit, right, if you really wanted to completely obliterate it. But we didn't. At any point, Russia could do that, right? I mean, the the Tupolev bomb—they have their B fifty two equivalent. They have their B one B equivalent. They use those all the time. Just yeah. they use them to launch cruise missiles. Okay, is the reason they're not going "quote unquote" all in because they actually want to take the land because the country's divided? They didn't want to destroy the place to begin with. Here, here's something people have to understand: yeah, you want the infrastructure. You want the. Well, it's not just that. I mean. It, if the Russians and Ukrainians aren't brothers, they're at least first cousins, like, and the populations there are very mixed. So you have to understand that like the, the Soviet Union, when it collapsed, it created, uh, it collapsed into 15 separate countries. And during the reign of the Soviets, uh, particularly under Stalin, there was a lot of forced migration. Ethnic Russians would be moved to these other places, and then the minorities there would be moved elsewhere to dilute their power so there wouldn't be like a strong minority somewhere contesting Soviet rule. So there's this sort of thing goes on for many decades, and then the Soviet Union collapses, and so you've got ethnic Russians that are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Kazakhstan, Latvia, all over. And you have those people who are in Russia too. So it's not like... Um, 
I mean, first of all, Ukraine and Russia, look, their, their histories are intertwined. People have been doing backflips over the past year and a half to try to further differentiate people who are far more similar than dissimilar, right? Ukraine is basically the edge of this Russian empire for a long time. Uh, a big part of the, uh, the, the Orthodox portion of Ukraine is, you know, Eastern Orthodox, just like Russia. The languages are similar. Um, they're about as similar as they can be without being mutually intelligible. A lot of people have family um, that that on both sides of the border. I mean, there have been soldiers who've kind of invaded and then, you know, been in like miles from their grandmother's house, that sort of thing. And so it's really uh, it's not officially, of course, Ukraine and Russia are separate countries. I'm not saying they aren't, but the longstanding historical, cultural, religious ties, all those things are very real. So it's not it's not really like there's such a foreign entity right on the border and they want to destroy so they're it. They're not going to just go slug into that. Right. They now they could have done that from the beginning. So for all this talk about you know Putin being this bloodthirsty monster, he could have done what you said early on and basically given everyone else the finger and said, "I'll nuke you if you get in my way." None of that happened. It's actually been very restrained, and like I. Over the course of my career, I've kind of worked and traveled around the former Soviet Union quite a bit. Russian was my, my first foreign language uh, when I worked uh, in the intelligence community. Um, I've had a lot of friends and acquaintances from the area. Perfectly normal to, to meet somebody who's Russian, but they're from Ukraine, but they speak Russian, they identify as Russian. Or to meet someone, it's like, oh, they, they live in Russia, but all their cousins live in Crimea. So these places, like, it's, we don't really have an equivalent here. Some people use the some people compare the military aspects to like, well, imagine that Russia had built up a big army in northern Mexico for solely for the purpose of contesting U.S. rule. The U.S. would have done something. Sure. In that sense, it works, but not in any other sense, really, because we're talking uh, Russia and Ukraine owe their origins to the same medieval empire like 1300 years ago. Right? I can't offhand it. I don't recall the exact number, but something like that. They're all uh, descended from the original medieval forebearer Kievan Rus. The languages have kind of evolved, but they're they're both in the same Eastern Slavic family. The people are very similar. Now, when you get to Western Ukraine with a lot of Ukrainian era Ukrainian nationalists, they will disagree, of course, and they will try to further differentiate themselves from the Russians. But it's sort of um, I mean, it's, it's a long intertwined history of people who are more similar than dissimilar. So that like there was no desire to go just blast Ukraine. There was uh, that. That's why he went in light. That's that's why Russia went in light. That's why Russia hasn't gone uh, completely berserk on Ukraine ever since. I mean, they need to be able to live with the neighbors. The goal here isn't to go, you know, wipe out your cousins. Yeah. As much as people say that, like uh, I think the the Canadian Parliament last year voted, I believe it was unanimously, to declare Russia's war in Ukraine a genocide. And it's like, well. One can dislike it. War is awful and ordinary people suffer the most in every war. I have no problem with somebody expressing strong opposition to the war, but to call it a genocide, I mean, like, keep that word to the side because we might actually need to use it sometime when it really matters. Yeah. This wasn't a genocide. It's it's ugly. Uh, it's It's not what anybody wants to see, but it's not a genocide. So we get that kind of situation going on. Um, and it's not representative of what's actually happening on the ground. There's actually been a lot of restraint from the Russian side. 
uh, and all this talk of, well, we have to stop him in Ukraine or he's going to roll through all these other countries. D- just total nonsense. There, there's no there's no evidence to believe any of that. There's just narrative and statements that he might do it. But it's again, if we look back at the past 15 years, especially of foreign policy, or even if we go all the way back to the mid 2000s, there's nothing that suggests this is something Russia wants to do. Um, so anyway, I can pause there. You know, I guess in a way, Russia could be calling our bluff. I get, I get on one hand just the, and this is like zero soul, zero emotions, just examining it as power. I get bleeding one of your near peer competitors because you have a, you have an opportunity to, right? You're always just taking land when you can or making moves when you can denying the enemy assets. But we're not going to sacrifice ourselves for it. So Russia can just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and we'll keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Eventually, if they really just do a big one, just knock the fuck out of, like, one city, or start saying any more shipments will be met with, you know, a barrage, they know that Ukraine's far more important to them than it is to us. At a point, we will go, we'll never say it because you got a posture, but there is a, there is somewhere, there's a, there's a secret file that says, yeah, no, if this happens, just back off. I don't actually care. Well, I think that's a far more optimistic view of the people in charge on our end than, right. than, than I have. All right. um, now, br- broadly speaking, any reasonable person would absolutely agree with what you just said. Like, I mean, honestly, why are we doing this in the first place? What is our vital national interest over there? I mean, all of this stuff has been concocted. The, this administration took over and there for years hadn't been any talk of Ukraine and NATO, of joining NATO, um, that kind of, there had been at least uh, a tenuous kind of peace. Like there, there was no, not in Donbass, of course, not, not, not peace isn't what I meant. It hadn't escalated to the point of another war uh, beyond Donbass. Because let's remember that the war didn't start in February last year. It started in 2014. Are you aware of that? So basically, well, yeah, they, you, they, yeah, they went in. The separatists, right. Yeah. So that war continued all along. Oh, that, that whole eight-year period. That never there ended? Was, no, it never ended. It absolutely never ended. In fact, Ukraine was gearing up for another big push on Donbass. The, the fighting in Donbass continued from 14 all the way until Russia's invasion. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%, man. It was never it, stopped. Trench it? warfare, artillery... Uh, Ukraine was constantly mobilizing uh, people who had served. Some people had served multiple times at the front. It never ended. So the, yeah. I didn't didn't know that. Wow. That got my face. It's it's one of the first things I wrote uh, when I said I had to, within the first 24 hours last year of the start of the war, the start of the invasion, I uh, was asked to write a backgrounder. And that's one of the first things I went to was this isn't new. It's been going on for eight years. And there's, you know, many thousands of people had already died. And, and there had been a lot of shelling, the Ukrainian shelling of civilian areas in Donbass. And in fact, leading up just before the Russia's invasion last year, there, the Ukrainians were about to make another, a, a massive assault on Donbass. Like the, the effort was still, the goal was still to push the, to reclaim that area from the pro-Russian separatists who had taken it in 2014. So this is just... I don't think people are aware of that. Like there's been a lot of bloodshed, not just in Dunbass, but elsewhere too, like in 2014, a lot of people 
they were we've seen these maps online of this is the pro-russian side this is the pro-ukrainian side and a lot of people in the west have interpreted that kind of like a red state blue state thing where well you don't get to go start a war and bring in a foreign power just because your side didn't win an election it's like that's not what's been going on there's very deep-seated hatred there, there's a long history particularly since world war ii um, if you remember a lot of the ukrainians treated the nazis as liberators because they didn't because they had been subjugated by the by the soviets you know the ukrainians were farmers the soviets came in when they established the soviet union forced a lot of them onto collective farms there was a lot of repression so a couple decades later when the nazis came through the ukrainians initially saw them as liberators and many of them fought with and for the nazis i mean there are ukrainian ss divisions uh, some of the worst crimes of the eastern front that we refer to uh, about the holocaust actually came at the hands of, of Ukrainian Nazi collaborators, essentially. So not all of them. I'm not giving the impression that all Ukrainians worked on behalf of Hitler. But my, my point is there's just so much uh, antipathy, historical antipathy between these groups that it was always a little bit of a powder keg once issues of national identity became paramount. So then since, since uh, about 16, 2016, the Ukrainian government has been in a pretty concerted effort to do things that under any other circumstances, we, our government would call ethnic cleansing. Like they're renaming towns, not using the Russian name, but using the Ukrainian name. They're trying to discourage or outlaw the use of the Russian language. Uh, there's been a lot of violence. There were outright, uh, we're all familiar with Azov and we can get into Azov in a minute if you like, but there were other Ukrainian nationalist groups that were essentially giant militia or big, big gangs, big groups of thugs that have been allowed to operate and kind of run rampant, or some of them were even incorporated, like Azov, got incorporated into the, the official structure of the Ukrainian government. Or are you familiar with what happened in Odessa in uh, 2014 in May? There, there was clashes between all these protesters. This is after Russia had, uh, seized and annexed Crimea. And uh, sort of not far from there um, is Odessa, the port city that's historically Russian, but at this up until now still controlled by Ukraine. I mean, there's there's fighting. At one point, the pro-Ukrainian people, they, there are videos of them making the Molotov cocktails, singing songs about killing Russians. And then they go attack this government building and they cooked 42 people. Like 42 people got up on the roof and they either jumped, they died of fire or smoke inhalation. Like that's one of the more um, conspicuous examples of this kind of inter-ethnic violence that's happened. But there are many others. So that's what I mean is when we talk about in the West, the message is about self-determination. Well, self-determination for whom? You have a deeply divided country. Like, and there are two sides and uh, that were kind of very nearly kind of tearing each other apart or, or tearing the country apart. So it's, it's this powder keg to begin with. And then our current administration comes in and just starts beating that drum again. Ukraine is going to join the West, you know, Ukraine self-determination for Ukraine, NATO's door, open door policy remains open, essentially um, trying to pull, you know, Ukraine out of Russia's orbit and into uh, the Western orbit, knowing that it would prompt some kind of additional military intervention from Russia. No, absolutely knowing it. And then are we maybe not even, are we getting lost in a completely moot point? by talking about should we or should we not Ukraine, Russia, this is the entire thing a flex to show China like we will get involved is the entire thing we're just we're looking at them and just 
just working. Just like- I, I don't believe it's a, a flex to show China anything. Okay. Um, so let me. Typically, I speak about things that I know from personal experience or have studied long enough that I'm have a really uh, high level of confidence in what I'm going to say. So when we start talking about the real motivations of the people who pushed the war, I have to acknowledge up front. I simply don't know. Well, yeah, we can't see into their heads. You know, was COVID right. lab made or not? Probably was. Will we ever find a video of someone going, here I release intent? No, you'll never, we can get really close to the CIA and the mob and the KGB. You're never going to find the document that says, and here's why I'm killing JFK. I, I get that. And so we, we are speculating. But to me, it's like when nothing is adding up. And I, I, I get the whole, the government's, not, not you saying it, but the government's just stupid. I think they're stupid, but I think there are some very competent people in there who just happen to be evil. So I have to look at it and go, they're doing something. Why? Why are they like? I, I read a book back in January. Sorry, I know I'm interrupting you, but like called uh, uh, "Oil" by Upton Sinclair. Sure. And yeah, and it's the entire thing is like the dad trying to buy like land from these like podunk illiterate farmers because they find mm-hmm. oil out there, and even the farmers who like don't know anything are still just like. You know, well, Mr. Scott, whatever is, you know, J. Arnold, J. Arnold Ross, Mr. Ross, like, you know, I don't understand you, but a man like as rich as you who comes out here in like, his own Model T and you want my land Sounds and you said, I'll, you said, I'll give you $5,000 and I said no. And without blinking, you said, how about 10? He's like, I like we farm rocks here. What do you see? What do you yeah. see? So. Is Gerald Ross stupid? No, I think he's conniving and is sees oil and doesn't give a shit if these people get what's there. So that's how I'm looking at it. Is like, where's, I, the, I do where's the oil? Where's the not literally, but like, well, let, let's find the oil. I think we can. So okay. again, this is where uh, I'm pausing any professional judgment and then really getting into which means uh, you are officially what? on Tommy's podcast. <laughs> that's right. I'm, speculating. I'm, I'm in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if, if I had to place a bet, not knowing conclusively or, or even uh, not, not having any kind of overwhelming evidence, I'd, I'd first start by saying it isn't really just the government. I'd say the powers that be. So there's a government corporate kind of merger there, obviously, yeah. right? We tend to talk about these things and say like, oh, the CIA. Well, really, we're talking about some kind of deep state or some kind of uh, deep-rooted power uh, yeah. In, in the country. So here's one thing that I find curious. When the Bi- when Biden got elected, I remember seeing this article in Politico about how BlackRock had supplanted uh, Goldman Sachs as like the commercial interest in the White House. And all of these key staffers have come from BlackRock. That's what that means. Like they're they're more influential. They're they're kind of like the inside uh, they have the inside track. But we also know a number of other things. We all we've seen all of these absurdly premature discussions about the reconstruction of Ukraine Mm -hmm. and who's involved in that and who might be like, well, what's the number one name that kind of comes up in that discussion? Well, there's BlackRock. And then we see uh, I think it was Max Blumenthal testified to Congress that much of the aid financially that we've given Ukraine went to pay off its sovereign debt and who held a lot of that sovereign debt. Well, it was also BlackRock. So I'm not saying it's just specifically them, but if you want to look at a reason, uh, that's a very curious thing to say. My, if I had to put everything on one theory, not knowing whether you know how firm it was, I'd say that the people in the West wanted a war in Ukraine. They wanted to to push to provoke a war with Russia 
because they very foolishly thought that uh, Russia was so weak that they could kind of collapse it, right? That there would be regime change or Russia, you know, it's a gas station masquerading as a country. It's too weak. We push this war in Ukraine. We've built this massive army. We'll give them everything we've got. They'll defeat Russia. There'll be some kind of coup in Russia and we'll be back in there and we'll be able to, because to uh, financially profit from, from all of that. Mm. Because if you go back when the Soviet Union collapsed, the 90s were the Wild West. I mean, that's when at something like 10 or 15 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the uh, Russia had a, the greatest number of millionaires and billionaires per capita in the world. Now, how does that happen? How do you go from like a collective, you know, essentially communist society to having the greatest number of millionaires and billionaires in the world? Well, there's a lot of organized crime. There's a lot of people doing things they shouldn't be doing. And so it was kind of the Wild West. Putin reigned that in. Not that they aren't there, but they know when they have to bend the knee. And they know that he sits atop the patronage network, he and his people. And one of the things they've done is effectively freeze out this big Western attempt to get their tentacles in there and forever kind of pick away at the bones of old Soviet Russia. So that happened. Um, Putin came to power in uh, late 99. And then he essentially, by this point, the first Chechen war had been over. So there's pretty good evidence that he or, or the FSB at his direction staged the bombing of an apartment building in Russia, mm -hmm. killing some Russians, yeah. blaming it on the Chechens as the impetus, the case of for the second Chechen war. And what that did, of course, was kind of create this enemy. Everybody, everybody's focused on that. While that's going on, he does a whole bunch of other things like all of the different administrative components of Russia, they have different names, but let's just call them states. I mean, they're republic, they're oblasts, they're a whole bunch of different things, but let's just think of them as states, the administrative division uh, below the national level. He's, he had things change so that he they would centrally appoint the governors of those places. Whereas before, after the collapse, it had been kind of devolved out to them. So there was this consolidation of power going on after the wild west of the 90s. And by the mid to late 2000s, Putin had basically done that. You know, uh, there was this one, uh, there's this one oligarch, uh, Khodorkovsky, and he had this company called Yukos. It was a big oil company. It was one of the richest men in the world. He got singled out because he had basically sort of publicly stood up to Putin when Putin was trying to establish himself. See, all these other interests, they wanted Putin to be weak like Yeltsin so they could keep doing what they were doing. And a lot of commercial interests outside of Russia wanted Putin to be weak like Yeltsin so they could keep doing what they were doing. So all of that is going on. So Putin in particular makes an example of Khodorkovsky and his business partner, a guy named Platon Lebedev. So they end up getting um, sent to prison. Now, understanding they got rich during a time when they certainly committed crimes to get rich. So it's not, I'm not saying that there wasn't reason to put them in prison, but part of this was to say, hey, all of you got rich doing things that we all know were illegal. And, and one of you had the gall to kind of question me as I'm trying to consolidate power. So they put Khodorkovsky and Lebedev in prison. A few years later, as these guys were coming up on parole eligibility, they get charged and eventually Re, uh, retried and convicted and sentenced to additional prison. Like it was all pretty blatant. It was, hey, like don't step out of line. This this wasn't a one-time thing to anybody else who's looking. So essentially he creates, he consolidates his power and with all the high oil revenues at the time, really living, there, a lot of order got restored to Russia. Living standards started to rise. A middle class started to 
uh, emerge in some of the, the cities. And so that's, and by this point, Putin then late 2000s turns his attention outward to rebuilding Russia's foreign policy. So in 2007, I think it was, they resumed the old uh, Cold War practice of long term, of uh, long distance bomber flights along NATO's borders with the bears that mm -hmm. you mentioned. The 95. So, right. And around this time, too, in 2008, is the famous Niet means Niet memo from Burns, who's oddly enough the CIA director now, but he was the ambassador to uh, Moscow then. And it basically means, look, Russia is saying that there's got to be an end, like, don't come any closer. We were weak. You were able to take Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Estonia. You were able to kind of creep right, right up on our borders. But uh, this is it. And so what happens that year? The Georgia War. George Bush is talking about the doors open to Ukraine and uh, Georgia for a NATO membership. So Russia invades Georgia. And then everything kind of simmers down a little bit. And then we have the whole Euromaidan thing, which we can get into or not. In 2013 and 2014, Russia takes Crimea. And then, of course, the basically the ethnic Russian parts of eastern uh, Ukraine and Donbass start end up fighting this war that has not stopped. It started then and it continues until now. Um, so. Am I just looking at it naively? Like... I can sit here in an air-conditioned room and banter about what's causing it and why are they... I mean, is it is it just the childish view of like, yeah, man, whoever has more guns is going to take more shit. And it's just kind of been that way for all of human history. And sure, we progress and there's... But for the most part, man, it's just like you come in and do whatever you want when you have more destroyers and more bombers and we dress it up as... As it's noble and good and freedom, but I mean, do you reach a point where you go in there and you know it's like when you find out that my buddy was a was a TA when we lived uh, when I went to UGA and I forget who it was was it was it Gurley was he the like the running back from Georgia I don't I don't remember and uh, I remember my 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 buddy Billy was like yeah he's never once been a class and I was like damn and he was like yeah but he has perfect attendance. <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, you, you're part of the problem, Billy. Go dogs. And I, yeah, I remember, I remember, but I remember he just went, right. he, I just remember he went like, what do you, th how do you think it goes? And he's like, you think if I stop it? He's like, no, I'm out of a job. He's like, and then you look at it and you know, there's like a hundred million dollar gym for the football team and the, the stadium's right in the center of it. And then there's just kind of like the maturing moment where you go, yeah, dude, what do you think it is? What, what the fuck do you think it is? You got to keep the dynasty going. That's what runs all this other shit. That's where the people mm -hmm. don't go to UGA like, I'm going to go get that biology degree. No, it's you want to get blackout drunk at 9 a.m. and stare at sorority girls and scream, go dogs. And mm -hmm. it doesn't make it right, but at the same time, grow up. Am I just, have I just not grown up? Like, yeah, dude, it's war. The people go die and the old guys make money and that that's just what it is. And I reap the benefits of it. Even if I think I've never done anything, there's a reason why I can buy an iPhone or buy an iMac. Like, yeah, man, this shit, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Like, it's, yeah, someone owns something somewhere. Someone owns a rare earth metal uh, mineral mine. Somebody owns this or that or the other thing. And it's, like it or not, man, you're growing up under the umbrella of this. And it's just the newest iteration. Doesn't mm -hmm. make it right. You should try to do the right thing when you can but grow up is that the dark realization if we want to paint with a very big brush sure 
just I remove mean, no, all emotions and just look at reality, not what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, what, I mean, what that's what? the nature of power, yes. Yeah. Yep. Now, there's lots of goodness in there elsewhere. Sure. sure. And, you know, it's meaning and, and other things, family and relationships and stuff. And uh, sometimes uh, the people with power really do good things for others. But sure. broadly but broadly speaking, yeah, that's that's what it is. But it, there, it's not all sinister. I mean, I think it's irresponsible to, in this case, for example, to look at Russia and just act as if it has no legitimate security interests. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, like to say yeah. like, oh, no, Na- what's paramount here is that NATO's door can stay open because so no one tells us what to do and the self-determination of individual nations. It's like, well, we staged a coup in that nation and then we built a giant army and it's been fighting all this time. It's not exactly um, self-determination. Huge parts of the country are, are so opposed to it. They've been fighting a war for eight years. Um, yeah. Yeah, man, that's kind of, that's like once you see that and then you can't really put it away, then you try to act serious and you go, but it's about expanding democracy. And it's like, I don't know what uh, no. it is, man. It's about power. 100% this is about power. At least on, on the side of the, the Western backers, it, it is absolutely about power. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not trying to paint, uh, I'm not trying to say that Putin is saintly. I mean, I, I think in this particular case, there are a lot of reasonable sympathies that go to Russia's argument, but it's, I'm not sitting here saying that uh, the country hasn't done uh, reprehensible things or that, you know, they haven't bullied others. I'm just saying that in this particular case, they had legitimate security interests. So since I've written about this quite a bit, since the collapse of the Soviet union, what did we do with our large standing armies? We NATO, we got rid of them, right? Europe got so demilitarized. They basically have token armies. Um, is that something you do when you're fearful of this threat from Russia? No, of course not. There was no threat. Basically, the idea was we do what we want and Russia suffers what it must. Like that was kind of the the way Russia was, the way I think about it, Western policy people, some people have this idea. Excuse me. You're good. I forgot to tell the listeners I'm on my uh, first round of COVID here, so He's, it's a, po- apologize. I'm a little under the weather. Yeah, you know, we're big fans of bioweapons here. Yeah, well, I've got one in me at the moment. Um, shoot, on that note, uh, going? Uh, power, Russia, uh, token armies, weak. Are you actually scared? Keep door open. Yeah, so out. basically, it's some people think there's been this big plot for decades to destroy Ukraine. And it depends on how you tell the story. Like there was a CIA operation uh, at the end of uh, World War II, start of the Cold War that went on for a long time, trying to destabilize Ukraine and kind of pull it away from the Soviet Union. Then Brzezinski kind of a lot of, there's this Polish idea like, well, we've got to carve off Ukraine from Russia. That's how we get those Russians. So can repeatedly throughout time, there's been this idea that the West needs to pull Ukraine away. But that doesn't mean, and so from the 30,000 foot view, they say, aha, look at what's going on right now. This, it's been the plan all along. And that's simply not how any of this works. You know, people change office, certain ideas are prominent for a while, and then they go into obscurity, and then they come back. It's not been this Western conspiracy since 1945 that we have to carve it off, but it's an idea that's percolated to the top multiple times. And uh, most notably, obviously, with the current administration, um, so, but it's, it's not the case that it was, that it was always there. 
so that's that's one thing. Um, yeah. Sorry, my COVID-addled brain is forgetting no, your excellent. You're, no, you're good. <clears throat> and then another part of me thinks, and what we can't know, but just if I had to, you know, where's the oil? Part of me would look at it and go, maybe we're looking at China and we don't know when a war is, but it's going to come. Maybe we're going, let's do a war in Ukraine and let's get all those armies. Let's get the, sure. that defense base up in Europe. Let's get, we've, we've got our powerhouse. We're the military industrial complex. Maybe we're looking at it and going, it's better safe than sorry to maybe have everyone there kind of. Like I've interviewed Secret Service guys before, and like they're like, you'll never know when there's like a, a security threat. They keep that all private, but they're like, every once in a while, you'll just kind of have this like spidey senses. Well, just you'll you'll start <laughs> to see the well, no, not even that. You'll like you'll start to maybe see the back of the SUV, the window crack just a bit, so you can see the tactical guys they normally keep out of sight. And it's like if you know what to look for, you go, oh, so is that what this is? Where it's just like let's get this up and going just in I mean I don't know it's just so here's how I would put it the we're led by the architects of a failed worldview so if we want to mm. we can say that we're seeing the end of the post World War II era and that's true but I think it's more useful to look at it as the post Cold War era yeah. the past 30 years or so and we were the top dog yeah. And Europe demilitarized and put all of its money into social programs and essentially in doing so made themselves our, themselves our vassals. And so what we have here is just this consistent U.S.-led uh, post-Cold War order, a form of hegemony, like we're, we're the top dog there. And if you want to know what's going on, you really don't even have to read the tea leaves that much. You can just look at a lot of the foreign policy documents and a lot of the commentary from within the foreign policy community. There was an attempt. Um, some people thought, you know, that we have to kind of pull Russia away from kind of siding with China. A lot of people wanted to see the end of, of modern Russia. Um, ah, I know where I know what I forgot. Let me let me go back to it. So this idea that Ukraine, uh, there, there hasn't from the 30,000 foot view, it looks like we always wanted to snatch it away. And that's just not true. In the past 30 years or so, and particularly in my time in government, what I saw was complete apathy. Like Russia, there wasn't really a coherent Russia policy. We thought of Russia as a place um, that caused the occasional headache and had a bunch of resources. And our only policy really was to maximize, to minimize the former and maximize the latter. How do we get resources and how do we really stop Russia from causing problems when we don't want it to? They kind of need to go along with the program. And that's really what I witnessed. And like I said, when Putin came along and he really started to put an end to it and kind of consolidate power, that's when things started to get um, a lot more hostile. But even so, it just took a lot. The, the attitude in the West was like, what is Russia going to do? I can't remember the number of times I was, you know, in some meeting with the government and, you know, we talk about some action that was going to happen. And anybody who even suggested, but what about Russia? What could Russia do? What would Russia think? It was all raised eyebrows, rolled eyes, you know, strange looks like, how dare you even bring them up? Like, what the hell are they going to do? They're the vanquished. Like it's, it's basically Gotham sitting on top of some oil. And like that was kind of the general attitude. 
And so I think a lot of the policies were reckless just out of hubris. And unfortunately, you know, I said that we're still run, or at least our foreign policy is still run by the architects of this failed worldview. They haven't updated their view of Russia, not of its military capabilities and strength. Remember economically, remember how we, they were supposed to be in the stone age by now with all these sanctions. So the people have this really inaccurate view of Russia, they have for a long time, and uh, they're still in charge, particularly on the foreign policy front. And it got, there's a domestic political aspect to it as well, because it got really weird in 16. There, Trump wasn't supposed to win, according to the people in power. They didn't even see that coming. Like they couldn't even organize a real effort against him because they just didn't think it was even a remote possibility. And then abracadabra, he won. So there's been this full on revolt since then. I mean, we now know, I think anybody, we now have overwhelming evidence that this there was no collusion. This whole Russiagate hoax went on. And I think it became, uh, it kind of grew into something else. Like no one cared about Russia before then. Absent all that 2016 stuff, I mean, how many times are there wars elsewhere in the world or hell, even among former Soviet republics that no one gives a shit about? In the end of 2022, there was a really important war, at least militarily in terms of future military uh, technologies and tactics in a place called Nagorno-Karabakh from between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They're both former Soviet republics. I think once I saw a mention of it on the American news and it was on a Chiron. It wasn't even like a, hey, in today's update on the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, none of that. So I think absent our people making this such a big deal and just kind of plowing ahead, ignoring Russia, and then ultimately deciding kind of after 16, when Russia became the boogeyman, that they were going to kind of have their way with, with Putin's Russia, uh, absent all that, well, I mean, there wouldn't be a war, but any conflict between the two would have just been a conflict that no one over here really even cared about. It would just be another foreign war. Yeah, I saw a video. This if one happened, you know. I saw a video this morning of, that's the only thing. It's like, I, I, you look at a video and you're like, I saw that this morning. It's like, I have no idea if that video was taken in 2008 in, in Georgia. Like, I don't I have no idea, but it's a, they're throwing mines out of the back of a troop transport in Ukraine mm -hmm. they're doing their own fields and you know somebody commented I don't think even ironically they're like man Cargill is gonna have to which is like a poultry agricultural giant mm -hmm. like Cargill is gonna have to pay so much extra to like have all these mines removed because they've they've bought up like so much of this land in the last year or so and it was Not just gonna this, be their land soon <laughs> yeah but it was just this moment of like you see behind the veil. It's like, yeah, boy, exactly. You know, I bought a bunch of Cargill stock thinking, you know, like, hey, I'm not for these vaccine mandates anyway. But like, if you look at my Pfizer portfolio, I mean, we're looking at an estimated and it's like, dude, <laughs> like the, Ukra the Ukrainians have been getting shellacked and slaughtered all along in this war. But the people, the information we get from our official sources and from our media sources is all propaganda. It's such nonsense. But they, the Ukrainians have been getting shellacked all along. They've probably had a few hundred thousand killed, many more wounded, many more displaced. I mean, in the course of a year and a half, like that, that's in, those are insane numbers. We lost in our whole involvement in World War II, 400,000 dead. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? Like this is this crazy lethal conflict that has not been going, uh, Ukraine's way. Now, again, like I said earlier, Russia went in too light in the beginning. It didn't wasn't able to secure this agreement. I mean, honestly, it had an agreement early on in Istanbul, but then the West came in and the proxy war began. But um, 
even so, all this talk about reconstruction and Cargill and BlackRock and all these other uh, kind of global commercial interests, it was all ridiculously premature. And it's like, you don't, first of all, the war is ongoing. Second of all, Ukraine isn't winning the victory that people are saying it's winning. And then like, you don't even know who's going to own the land. Like we've made it such that Russia, Russia can't have an effective partner in any kind of peace negotiation. So they're going to have to basically collapse Ukraine, take which parts they want and sort of find some willing partner to govern the parts they don't want. And are, does that mean that all these contracts with the global companies get honored? Like what, what the hell are their people thinking? Like it's, but it was discussed by uh, purportedly serious people in a serious manner in the Western press, like, oh, we need to, it's time to discuss the reconstruction of Ukraine. What planet are you on? Um, I've never, it's weird. You know, in recent years, everything seems to have gone nuts, right? From Trump and COVID and Ukraine, it's like just the, the whole world seems to have gone crazy. Some people think we're in a fourth turning. I don't know if you read that book. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's pretty spot on. But so, yes, everything we're seeing is nuts. But even so, I never get immune to it. I still look at all of these commentaries coming out of people who uh, we're supposed to believe are respectful, who have good credentials, and it is just fantasy land bullshit nonstop about this war, about capabilities. I'm working on a series now. Um, I'd hope to have it out by now, but it's not. Um, basically, what I think is how these interventions are setting the stage for NATO's demise. Now, that'll make people's heads spin. Like, what are you talking about? Finland just joined. Sweden's joining. NATO is expanding. Adding names to a list does not add capability. It doesn't make it any stronger. It doesn't make it stronger internally. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like th there are all these forces at play. And when I listen to the people who are supposed to be the adults in the room, um, I, I just, well, I don't, I, I can't, I had to stop. Yeah. It was, it was too much, it was too much in the face of the evidence. How much of it is no one's calling the shots. It's just doctrines and, you know, computers just playing out war games saying if you got to move this thing here to move that thing there. And it's just all this tertiary and quaternary effects where if you go and talk to a general, it's like, well, the computer's telling us that we got to move this to Finland and Norway, do that. And it's it's just no no one person's like sure. calling the shots. It's just, it's, well, it's just not, the machine working. Not having a quarterback is always a problem. Um, and there's that's going on to some extent here. But I, I would say it's not... It's not that there's some computer program that's the problem. It's the arrogance of our leaders that's the problem. They are the bad computer program. They are the ones who keep pushing these uh, really absurd demands that uh, Ukraine can in no way meet, militarily or otherwise. I mean, even it was a month or two ago, Burrell, the, uh, basically the EU's foreign minister guy, he um, even he came out and acknowledged, well, if we stop giving Ukraine money and weapons, the war is over. What does that mean? Stop and think about what it means. All they have are Ukrainians. And as I said earlier, there's evidence that they have a lot fewer of them and not the right ones you need to fight a sustained conflict. So and I, you and I talked about this uh, on one of the earlier episodes, but major, major problems in our defense industrial base and our ability to sustain a high intensity conflict. We don't have it. We're, we're running low on all kinds of things. We can't sustain Ukraine in this fight, much less wage one of these wars on our own. And that may sound bold to some people, but it is absolutely true. Like we think about what happened in World War II and Detroit basically 
stopped making Fords and Chevys and started making tanks and airplanes. We don't even have all the factories we used to, not by a lot. So even if we wanted to nationalize them and invoke the Defense Production Act and mobilize our whole economy for war so that we can make enough stuff to fight this kind of war, even if we wanted to do that, we don't have all the factories. We don't have all the know-how because when you shut down factories, you lose a lot of manufacturing know-how. We don't have a lot of the precursors. We don't have a lot of the machine tools that we're desperately need on, um, short on. So it's not simply an issue of like, well, push the button and it'll take a while to get started, but we'll have this war economy. There are major impediments to our ability to sustain this sort of thing. And then think of the fortune we'd have to print to pay for it all at a time of unrivaled debt at all levels from personal debt all the way to the sovereign debt at a time of inflation. Like we need to write checks, so to speak, that we can actually cash in a foreign policy sense and in a military sense. And sustaining a proxy war against Russia when the cupboards are running bare and we have major problems of our own, while at the same time deciding that we need to deter China and get involved in all kinds of other stuff. It's just lunacy. It's late stage craziness. Um, And and again, we're still led by the architects of this failed worldview. And for them, what are they going to do? Say, well, we were wrong. The whole project of the past few decades of uh, this US-led global order just didn't work out. No, of course not. Everything they have is wrapped up in this, their fortunes, their reputations. I mean, they are, by their own estimation, the masters of the universe. And there's a lot of crazy ego wrapped up in it. So I don't think it's computer. It's it's ego. It's people. There's like there's a saying in D.C. like, you know, people are policy. You know, a lot of people have this really technical view of policy. And well, if we write it a certain way, we can get the right outcomes. No, it matters that you have the right people in the room because these people are all egotistical. They're all going to push for their own interests, that kind of thing. Well, who are the people in the room making the policy? It's neocons. Right. I mean, it's it's the same people who are OK with destroying Nord Stream yeah. or with pushing this war and poking China in the eye when we don't have uh, artillery shells even. Yeah. Just lunacy. I mean, I've, but that's characteristic of a collapse or an end, a change from one order. Not a, that may sound overly dramatic. The end of one order and the and a transition to a new one, whatever it might be. Broadly speaking, that's what we're seeing. Kind of the end of this U.S.-led post World War II order, or like I, I prefer to think about it more specifically, post Cold War order. That U.S.-led order is really going to transition and give way to something else. Yeah. Man, I guess if Russia just hits a critical, you've killed this many Ukrainians to a point where it cannot be replenished, we're going to hit this point where it's, we either send in NATO or we just, we won't call it quits, but we'll watch it and we'll go, they're now at a point of no return and it. It's like mm-hmm. when the the quarterback spikes the ball and they have three timeouts left, and it's like there's still two minutes left, but they won. Sure, kind of. We're already there. Yeah, absent a Western intervention. So, how maniacal is the machine? Are we going to see them going? Man, <laughs> well, it's like yeah, Nixon, I, right? Nixon had sure. That, Nixon had a speech written for in case the astronauts died on the or they couldn't get back. <clears throat> It was written. Well, we we clearly have a president who is not in control of all of his faculties, right? Well, you know, he's he's not in control, and I don't think he ever has been. 
I agree with you. So I'm saying let's start at the top because the top isn't NATO or some European country. They do what we say. Yeah. Like, right? So who's at the top, ostensibly at least, of our structure? Some guy who's not even there. Yeah. And then we look beneath him. Who's in charge of the foreign and the military policy? The exact same people who pushed all this stuff to begin with. So does it go well? Do they at some point just disengage? I really don't know. I certainly hope so. Um, their opportunity, their options to intervene are increasingly limited. Like what, what realistically are they going to do? It's, we don't have the forces to mount to, to amass or the, the stuff, the war material to back them to go in and like physically fight in some conventional capacity. So what are they going to do? Conduct airstrikes? I mean, like their options are quite limited, whereas Russia's options are, are not. There's this old saying in warfare, you got to get there the firstest with the mostest. Well, Russia is. They've got hundreds of thousands of people mobilized in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And these are armies that already know how to fight high-intensity conflict. Their defense industrial base is uh, ready to support. They have plenty of everything they need. They have experience in this kind of stuff. So if, if we're going to do something against whom and how? And what, like, what, what is it that we realistically could do? Now, I, my answer to that is militarily, it's a non-starter. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. The idea that we're going to go in and do something that won't uh, potentially lead to a nuclear exchange, but could still salvage the West's goals. I don't see where there's anything there. But that's, of course, the question is, what do the people making the decisions think? Yeah. Um, I, you know... Another, I, I, the pinned um, assessment I have on my Substack, and and it's free. I'm not saying this to try to get paid. I'm just referring back to something that has a lot more detail. Uh, the pinned assessment called Rubble and Rhetoric. The entire final section is not about the war or how we got here or military capabilities like the previous sections. It's all about what I think happens when uh, Russia wins, assuming there's no Western intervention. And I have a whole range of uh, things that I uh, like of, of basically archetypes that we're going to see of people who have to back their way out of this. Right. There are the people who say, oh, well, if only we had given this weapon system at this time, it totally would have gone differently. Or if only that or, or well, we had to do something or man, our big mistake was not admitting NATO or Ukraine to NATO beforehand. You know, we wanted them to meet certain standards. So there's all of these, I forget, four or maybe six categories into which I think all these excuses are going to fall. And I think we're going to see that. Um, but we've already started to see, particularly among the commentariat, people who have been dead wrong all along. The people we're supposed to listen to, they have huge followings on social media. They do the panel discussions. They write op-eds. They're supposed to be people listened to who have been dead wrong about this all along. I've started to see some softening, some, oh, well, you know, oh, man, maybe we just can't, maybe, you know, we're just in a place where you can like putting it on Ukraine, like where Ukraine just can't get across the finish line. Well, that's So we're, we're starting to see some of that. Well, that's what, and we got to wrap it up in a couple of minutes. So I got another sure. show after this, but like, that's where I think it's going to go is it's going to be, you know, if it's, let's just. We don't even have to bring up Vietnam because we brought up Vietnam. You know, you could say, well, that was 50 years ago and that was. Let's just go back to 2021, like more in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a it was a bad news cycle. Again, 
Republican senator, you know, thrashes Biden for saying this. And it's, can you believe we left? And then there's the suicide bomber, used 13 Marines. And then we pull out and we go, what a disgusting. And then it's just on to the next thing. And that was our own army. What do you think we're going to do to someone else? We're just going to hit a point where there's, there's probably the Nixon speech. The Apollo astronauts died on, they couldn't. There's probably a speech that goes. Oh, sure, sure. I, I would imagine not only that, there was probably presentations to say, well, we've recently been realizing that uh, Zelensky's been stealing the money off the top. And, you know, the American taxpayers weren't getting what they paid for. And it's we're going to go and everyone's just going to go. Oh, I knew it. The same people that have a Ukrainian flag in their bio are going to go. Yeah, you can't help them if they just pocket the money. And then we're going to go, well, are we yep. going to die over Russia? And everyone's going to shake hands and it's That's just going to. It hasn't the final, been, it's sorry, it the hasn't final been two years since our own withdrawal from the Middle East. Our own American boys were sending. That's over. how I concluded that paper. That's that how it's going to go. We're going to go. I said, well, does anybody even talk about what happened two years ago? And then it's going to conveniently come out that there's a picture of Zelensky with a swastika that everyone sees now, and if you post it, it gets flagged as missing. That's going to conveniently come out and be like, not only was he laundering money, did you know he's a white nationalist? Ha, huh, you know, it's lucky Biden was there. If Trump was in there, he would have found out he was laundering money and would have said, how can I help? And everyone's just going to jerk each other off, and then we're just going to be looking at it, and by the time the next war starts, we're going to be going, remember Ukraine? They're going to be saying, shut up, I, you know, Slava Portugal, I stand with what, and it's sure. just the machines just going to grind on, and the idiots are myself and yourself trying to make sense of it. I, I have a couple of long-running tweet threads where I just find those press articles that show the shift in tone yeah. from all the, the major press articles yeah. where they get leaks, you know, from the, the administration. The Nazi and I've got it. I've got to get it mapped out over several months where it's like, oh, well, we maybe we can, don't have enough equipment or, you know, this this counteroffensive is make or break. Well, you know, we taught them how to do it. We can't help it. You know, we let them to water. And like all, We're already going down that road. And then you're going to start having, you know, talking points going to get out there and it's going to be like Biden's going to be like, I stand with democracy, but above that, I'm an American and we're not going to send it. And I, that's the thing is, like, I technically agree with that point. So I'm not going to say, no, oh, I don't think we should have done any of this. Exactly. Yeah. But no one's going to care. <laughs> They're going to say, well, it's better to try. And then I'm just going to go, I don't, there's no, and then it's just sad. And then it's just sad. And then I look at it and I go, why am I so sad now? I've never given a shit about this stuff before. I go, well, that's war. And then you go, as Tim Dillon said, he goes, because these are roughly first world countries and they're white. So it kind of looks like a town where there could have been a Burger mm -hmm. King instead of something else. And the exactly what happened. The apartment blocks kind of look like the dorms you stayed in college. And aside well, from the clothes, that could be your grandma. And then you go, oh, Jesus, I just don't care because they're not brown people in mud huts. There, there's that, but that didn't happen organically. That happened when the entire Western establishment got behind saying it was a big deal. Yeah. So they played on that kind of racial sympathy that was there. Like, oh my God, these people have iPhones. Look at these poor people. But it all—it didn't happen organically. It happened because the entire Western establishment, in lockstep, pushed that narrative. I guess just like be a good friend. Call your parents. Yeah. Hold the door. Tip the Uber driver. It's kind of helpless, but like, it's like, that's it. And you go, yeah, if, that's it. If you're lucky enough not to have your life destroyed by some psychopaths in power, like, you know, the Ukrainians are having happened to them now. If you're lucky enough to avoid that kind of thing, 
then the stuff you just mentioned is the important stuff. Right. We're going to have more, you're going to have more of an effect on a friend who's maybe not doing too well. And you give him a call and it's like, Hey bro, you want to mm-hmm. talk? Like, yeah, don't give me that bullshit. I can tell you that we've known each other for 10 years. What's going on that you're probably gonna have more of an effect right there than 10 months of, of tweeting about Ukraine. Well, that was a horribly sobering, depressing end. It's always a pick me up, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> me and Lee, we bring the sunshine. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I'm an optimistic person. We're just talking about difficult things. Yeah. And the one takeaway I've always had from this is like the wars don't stop, but like the total number of deaths seem to be slowing down over the decades, you know, 400,000 and, and, in World War Two, fifty eight in Vietnam, and it's like seven. I'm like, well, that's one thing. It's a win, but that win's not even there because we're back up to like hundreds of thousands. Oh, of it's things. it's enormous. It's a slaughter, an absolute slaughter, a slaughter in which most of the people dying are Ukrainian, not Russian. Jesus. Damn it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just sad, man. And like. Oh, it's tragic. And that doesn't even get any anywhere. If you just go, well, it's sad. He goes, congratulations, Einstein. You concluded it's sad. Fuck. Yeah, I don't really have a positive spit on that. Yeah, be a, be a, let your parents know you love them. Yeah. That's my Well, the positive spin would be to get it over sooner rather than later, immediately. Yeah. Well. Not that that's going to. On that cheery note, <laughs> let's wrap this one up. Yeah, sure. Jesus, I don't know. On the cheery note is, is there's a funny inside joke about Lee Slusha. That's I'll have to check way. out some of your video game streaming then to they're, see they're, if I can catch it. They're they're pretty unholy. I don't know why <laughs> they keep going. I don't know why people watch them. They're just me having like bouts of Tourette's, just screaming like "fuck tits, balls, fuck." T-. People are like, "This is good content," and I'm like, "God." Damn it. <laughs> This episode we do right now, this, will, this one will cap at 2,000 views. Sure. I'll, I'll, over the course of a week. The gaming stream I do tonight will get 3,000 views of me just talking about should I shit out of my bedroom window. And people are like, Tommy's, he's, you know, he's candid. He lets you know what's on his mind. That's more depressing than Ukraine <laughs> War is the realization that my interviews with people about current events don't hold a candle to me running around in a SWAT team game shooting people. Most people never care about that big, important stuff anyway, but you're still providing a service to the people who do. God damn it. <laughs> well, we, yeah. let's wrap this one up, man. Yeah, let's do it. Guys, thank you for watching. Please go into the description. Please go to his Substack. Please go to his Twitter. And um, Lee, till next time, brother. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Tommy. Absolutely. Guys, thank you for watching. Recording Stay safe stopped. out there. Much love. Peace.